A quick note before we get started. This episode is part of a series of shows we recorded on the floor of the Phoenix Convention Center during the Association of Corporate Counsel's 2019 annual meeting. I wanted to point that out in case you're curious about the background noises. I also wanted to thank the ACC for helping make these episodes possible. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current events and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. And as always, I've got with me my producer. Joining me on this episode is my friend and partner, Kevin Hall. Kevin manages Womble's uh, Columbia, South Carolina office. And also sitting down with us today is Jason Stevens, Senior Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at Wellstar Health Systems. Uh, Kevin and Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. Glad to be here. Great. Absolutely. Thanks. Today we're going to be talking about a topic we haven't covered on this podcast, which is uh, medical malpractice uh, litigation. And I know that, I know Wellstar is huge, 11 hospitals and 24,000 employees. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit how the legal department's structured? In other words, what is your, what's your legal team like there at Wellstar? Uh, sure. So we have 10 uh, lawyers who work in-house, um, part of a team of 10. Um, we have a combination of generalists and specialists. So I would say each attorney has a primary area of responsibility that is a specialty area. And everyone on the team is also a healthcare law generalist. Okay. So they can handle about anything that would come through the door that would be needed. Uh, and we also have seven paraprofessionals who help support uh, the business and the department and function as uh, paraprofessionals to help the lawyers practice at the top of their job description. Gotcha. Um, now, we're going to talk a little bit about malpractice litigation. Is litigation something you do any of in-house, or is that something you use outside counsel, or is there a team formed between inside and outside? How, do, how are the malpractice claims handled? So our malpractice claims, we have a uh, team of about five different law firms that handle okay. our uh, risk management litigation, and we have an attorney in-house who has that subject matter specialty skill set where she helps manage uh, the work that those outside law firms uh, do. Gotcha. And of course, we have a, a whole internal risk management department of about 30 different uh, employees wow. that uh, handle the day-to-day -day responsibilities of claims and risk management lawsuits. Gotcha. I know in talking to other in-house counsel, there seems to be a trend to bring more and more work in-house. Is that something you've seen at Wellstar as well? In other words, has your legal department grown or is it fairly flat or going the other direction? What, what do you see happening in your space in terms of in-house roles? So when I started at Wellstar in February of 2017, we had six lawyers and we have 10 now. Okay. So we've That's, added four. That would qualify as growth, yeah. Uh, but the risk management litigation work is hard to bring inside because it is so um, time intensive and ebbs and flows just like any litigation does. So that would be really hard for us to bring in-house. And I don't know many health systems that do that. I know one health system in Indiana that does it, um, yeah. where they have in-house staffed employed lawyers that represent their employed providers and hospitals on malpractice claims, but they're the only ones that I know of. Gotcha. 
Now, I know we're going to have listeners, some may be hospital attorneys, but others may represent physician practice groups or nursing homes or other kinds of providers. I know one thing that can have a big impact is the nature of insurance coverage and whether you're self-insured or you've got a carrier. How's it structured with you? Do you have coverage and are they helping pick those counsel or how's the, what's your structure in terms of the role of insurance? Uh, so we have a, uh, a captive insurance company that manages our first level of risk on all of our insured risk. So uh, EPLI, uh, professional liability, hospital general liability, and then just general commercial liability. Uh, we have excess coverage above that captive coverage and the uh, excess insurers defer to us for selection of counsel okay. given the high level of self-insurance that we route through our captive. Gotcha. So you actually do get to choose, unlike unlike some smaller folks that are, have more what I would call traditional malpractice insurance, maybe an individual physician or something where the carrier typically comes in and says, we're going to provide you with this lawyer, whether you like it or not. Yes. And some of our coverages, the self-insured retention is fairly low. The professional liability is not one of those areas. And for the coverages where the self-insured retention is low, we proactively add the uh, panel counsel we want to use so that there isn't a dispute when it comes to the point where we've exhausted our retention and the carrier doesn't want to keep the same counsel uh, on the claim. Kevin? J Jason, how much uh, tension uh, is there in the relationship with your carrier when it comes to counsel selection? Is it, is it a, a source of conflict ever or is it something that, uh, that works pretty smoothly? Rarely is it ever a source of conflict. Um, where it does potentially become a source of conflict is when we hit an excess level of coverage and the applicable rate, whose rate applies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The uh, company's agreed to rate with outside counsel or the insurance rate. Yeah. And I, I suspect that, uh, that your lawyer who's working with you has an opinion on that when that happens. Uh, that lawyer does. That lawyer usually doesn't get to cast a vote in that election. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Been there. Well, in, in terms of trends um, in the hospital setting primarily, do you see an uh, increase, decrease uh, in malpractice claims, um, or, or is it a pretty steady state? Well, you know, I started off as a medical malpractice lawyer 20 years ago, and I started practicing in the state of West Virginia. Uh, which is a very challenging jurisdiction for healthcare providers to be in. It's a very uh, plaintiff-friendly environment. And so I think part of my answer to your question is informed by the venue, the jurisdiction, and what those different venues have done relative to tort reform. So um, the more progressive that the venue is in tort reform, that does have a downstream effect to the nature, quantity, and quality of the litigation uh, that is filed. Um, so I practiced in North Carolina for 10 years. Huh. And uh, in North Carolina, on a whole, I found the uh, healthcare professional liability jurisdiction to generally be in, uh, favorable to providers on the whole. Of course, exceptions to every rule. And then I have been in Georgia almost three years. And I would say the, the state as a whole probably would be a um, moderate state, but the specific answer to that question would depend on the, the county 
Absolutely. And we operate in some um, metropolitan counties in Atlanta and also in some uh, suburban counties in Atlanta. And there's a vast variation between um, the provider friendliness from one county to the next, and they could be sister counties. When you're evaluating uh, those nuances, those differences from county to county, even in a, in a uh, you know a small geographic range like Atlanta, densely populated, do you typically find that your carrier appreciates and knows those nuances uh, better than the lawyers or less well than the lawyers? Uh, where do you usually see the sensitivity to those those nuances? I would say that the carriers know the venues more than I thought they would, mm. less than the lawyers do. Okay. Uh, here's a for instance. So we have some carriers that want to limit their risk on the counties where there is exposure. So they will only write certain amounts of risk in certain counties, Ooh. regardless of who the insured is. Interesting. And that's a new dynamic that I yeah, had- I didn't know that ever um, happened. Yeah, that I'd never run across before. And so that tells me that they know more than I would have otherwise given them credit for. Hmm. And, and when you're um, confronted with a case, how much does that specific jurisdiction, that specific venue's own nuances or characteristics drive your decision making with regard to which council you think is going to be the best fit? Oh, a lot. Yeah. Hmm. Um, uh, because we want you know council that appreciates the nuances of the assigned judge, discovery rulings over the past two years. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of attention and focus on discovery in electronic health records now in medical malpractice cases and audit trails. And it's, it's such a kind of cutting edge discovery issue that we do get um, differing opinions from different judges. And so when we know that's going to be an issue or likely to be an issue in a case, we want an attorney that is familiar with that issue, if it's the same issue, and how a judge handled it in the past so that we can hopefully influence a different outcome or secure the same outcome, right. depending if it was provider friendly or not. I'm always curious, um, and I'm probably asking you to talk a little out of school when I ask you this question, so uh, feel free to dodge the question if you'd like. Uh, when you're dealing with your witnesses, um, you know, hospital-employed uh, professionals, uh, physicians that may be employed by the hospital system or physicians outside, uh, tell, tell us about your work with them. I, I always tease my doctor friends uh, that they're, they're too cool and too busy and too smart for litigation, or so they think, until it's <laughs> their turn, and then um, all of a sudden they like their lawyer friends. But uh, I say that jokingly, uh, teasing my buddies. Uh, do you see that uh, happen in, in real life uh, with your set of responsibilities? I would say that it, that reaction that you you know just shared is maybe different or lesser at Wellstar than previous places I've worked, and I think part of it is that we work really hard to collaborate and work with the physicians, and we've hired recently an attorney from the risk management litigation world to come in and, and sort of stand in the gap on this and work with our providers to help ready them for litigation if they're named in a lawsuit, to help ready them for depositions. Uh, I would say that the answer to that question is it's not as significant to us as I think it is to some. And that is one of the benefits of having physicians who are employed by a health system that get the, that those physicians get the benefit of having employed lawyers to kind of partner and work with them as opposed to independent physicians who have 
uh, professional liability insurance coverage that's apart from a system. They don't have that collaboration, that ongoing risk management dialogue and annual risk management training where they, they have the ongoing support. Yeah, that, that, that I think is a huge plus. Like you say, you, you have a sense of relationship and, and some trust built on the front end rather than meeting somebody new uh, who's supposedly going to help you mm-hmm. with, a, with a problem that uh, uh, you know, has professional implications. And I, I think for you know any human being, doctor or otherwise, who's sued, uh, there's an emotional impact of that uh, and an anxiety that comes with it. So oh, I think absolutely, that's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's a good question. I imagine you know there seems to be at least a trend in talking to the folks that do. I don't do malpractice litigation. Uh, still, the kind of sue everybody approach, where if you have someone that suffers some kind of bad surgical outcome, they're not just going to sue the hospital. They'll sue the surgeon and the hospital and the anesthesiologist and may throw in the nurses and may throw in everybody that was in the ER at the time that might have dropped the sponge in the body. And I imagine one of the challenges, you may have different coverage for the different people in that scenario, right? You may have physicians with their own malpractice coverage or other unemployed. Maybe maybe that's less of an issue with an entity like Wellstar. How do you deal with the multiple defendant issue? Do you provide different counsel to people in that situation? So if there's more than one Wellstar defendant, if there's a potential for conflict, we of course assign independent counsel. Um, but if there are unity of interests in the claims, then if it makes sense, we'll just assign the same counsel. Um, got you. And and do you have any issues working with, if you've got a physician that has their own coverage that may be working in one of your hospitals, do you have to then have your counsel coordinate with their counsel on the defense of the claim? I mean, I imagine. Y- yeah. So if it's, if it's a physician who's a member of our medical staff, uh, which is independent of Wellstar and is not employed by Wellstar, and if that physician is named in a lawsuit, then we do try to coordinate a defense just like any other multiple defendant civil litigation where and when it makes sense to. Um, it's not always possible. Mm-hmm. It's usually possible, but not always. Gotcha. Um, I think Kevin's question also reminded me, I think one of the things that makes medical malpractice work a little different than other litigation, no, no one likes to be sued, but physicians tend to be both very busy and very reluctant to admit that they've done anything wrong. They're very reputation sensitive. And I'm just wondering, as someone that's done a lot, you know, in this area, any tips for folks? How do you how do you deal with that non-economic? You've got to worry about the the claim. You got to worry about defense costs, but then you have this non-economic piece about reputation and you know reluctance to get involved and not wanting to spend time in deposition. How do you deal with that component? A really interesting angle of of professional malpractice where it come when it comes to medical professionals as well as attorneys, because essentially your business is you. Businesses make mistakes, things happen, but if it's an organization, it's an organization, right? There are plenty of organizations make mistakes and these things happen. But with professional malpractice, where you have individual uh, medical professionals and individual attorneys, it is, it's it's a really, that's a really difficult situation because your business is you and your reputation is so, so important. And, and I, th- I think that is something that, that is really, really compelling about this particular issue is that angle of it, that aspect of it. Well, a couple of thoughts in, in response to that. The, the first thing is with the, um, the rating industries, what I would describe mm. it as everyone wants feedback on yes. everything. 
and there are a number of social media sites that record and score feedback from patients on physicians. You know, ZocDoc is one of them. And so I would tell you that generally providers, just like the rest of us, want good scores, good opinions, good positive feedback from patients whom they provided service to. So, you know, to Brian's point, it is it is really important. Um, the reverse of that, though, is, and that's one thing that's different about us at Wellstar, you know, we subscribe to the do right philosophy. Mm-hmm. So if a patient has had an outcome that was unexpected, and it's something that we could have caused or could have done a better job at not preventing, we have never been afraid to say, I'm sorry, that shouldn't have happened to you. And the, the health system I previously worked at before I came to Wellstar, we had a program called the Apology Program, which the whole program was designed to effectuate apologies to patients wow. and family members. And um, most lawyers don't support, most law firm lawyers wouldn't support that approach. Right. Um, Why but, are you admitting liability? Yeah. But, but for us, it's the authenticity and transparency and trust relationship that an apology can help begin to restore a, a breach of that trust that might have formed from a bad outcome. And so I, and I see that trend, the not afraid to apologize approach taking ground all across the country. Interesting. Um, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because as obviously being a marketing public relations side of the of business, that is again something else that was a I was really interested to hear about from that malpractice side because there is that that reputational aspect of it again, and obviously one of the big um, ropes to walk is as Mark said, like oh don't admit liability, like don't don't you know, don't. but at the same time there is walking that fine line of also maintaining your reputation within the community with your stakeholders and so forth. I would be curious to hear just a little bit more about kind of your approach, how much thinking in your experience when you've uh, had to deal with these types of issues, how much does the public relations side of it and, and maintaining the public trust play into your thinking and your guidance counsel to the, to the rest of the organization? Well, so this is the opinion of one man, so not necessarily the opinions of of Wellstar Health System. But I will tell you, as a practicing attorney, I started seeing um, the concept you just shared, Brian, the the shift in the importance of public relations and consumerism. I, I began to see that take shape around the time of the recession, so 2008, when more and more consumers and more and more employers, I should say, started offering their employees high-deductible consumer-driven health plans, or CDHPs. And mm-hmm. and so it shifted more of the financial risk on employees, and employers frequently offset that by an HSA contribution or, or wellness program or something to try and soften the annual expense. But anytime that that deductible is foisted to employees uh, for the, the companies, it makes the employees think more like consumers. And so consumers have become accustomed to the Amazon economy. Mm -hmm. Um, Fast service, free returns, the truth to make something right. And that's had a trickle down effect across all parts of the service industry, including the the healthcare industry. And and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, It's just something that has happened with the next generation of individuals. 
It's interesting to me to see, uh, you know, when you look at the situation of an individual lawyer who's sued in a malpractice claim as compared to a medical professional. Um, and I, I guess one of the things that, uh, and I, I defended both actually, it, it, you know, in the legal business, at least our legal business, uh, we don't deal with blood and knives and um, uh, instruments that can cause harm, you know, so. Well, you're missing out. <laughs> <laughs> so, we don't, you know, when a lawyer's sued, it's, it's personal to a lawyer, and yet the damages are, are uh, you know, fortunately only economic. And I don't mean that in a, to diminish it, but that's a far cry different than someone's health or livelihood being affected because of a physical injury. Um, how do you uh, provide support for the medical professionals who are being sued, recognizing that it is stressful and causes anxiety? Do you, do you have any programs, or do you is that a one-off type of proposition to help them uh, navigate and, and be a constructive partner in the in the defense of the case? Yeah, no, that's a really, really good question. I think it's um, both a one-off individual-specific situation, but also as a system at Wellstar, we have a physician resiliency program mm -hmm. uh, to help physicians manage and be resilient at what they're doing every day. Because they would, if they were sitting here right now talking with you guys, the physicians would tell you that how they practice medicine now versus 20 years ago is entirely different. Just like all of us here sitting uh, at this podcast recording uh, have increased demands put on us professionally, they have as well. Although their patients and consumers might not know that. Yeah. So what are some examples of things that have changed in the practice of medicine over the past 20 years? Well, reimbursement declined. So providers and physicians are paid less now than what they were 20 years ago for providing the same service. Uh, there's a whole change in payer models. So, you know, 20 years ago, payers paid under what's called a fee-for-service model. So you, you go to the doctor, the doctor treats you, the doctor is paid on a per-encounter basis. Now the insurers and governmental programs are structuring payments, so there is a value component, there's a population health component, so it, it's not the same way as uh, the what we call the per-click payment was um, 20 years ago. And so all of that in the advent of electronic health records have um, caused forward-thinking health systems to provide these physician resiliency programs to provide mental health, mental awareness, and you know assistance to try and help physicians manage their daily practice. And so that's what I would say in response to your question um, that we provide you know as a system to any physician that wants or needs it, and certainly a physician that may be um, stressed over a, a lawsuit that's brought against himself or herself. I uh, just on a, on a personal note, I have a, a, a dear friend who is uh, obstetrician, and I remember the first time he was sued, and it was uh, it was upsetting and devastating. It was, uh, you know, I kept saying, "Hey, listen, uh, in your business, this is an inevitability, and um, you need to approach it that way statistically, and just calm, trust your lawyer, and work through it." Um, easier said than done. Easier right. said than done. Right. And I, I, I was able to. You know, as a friend uh, and a lawyer, certainly not the, the lawyer representing him in the case, you know, to encourage him. And I hope I was helpful to his defense counsel in terms of him having a little better perspective about it. But it was uh, striking to me how much it affected him and, and how hurt he was by it, which is not something that uh, 
I think most people think about it, but it, it, it was a mm-hmm. it was very personal to yeah, him. Yeah, it does. It is um, kind of personal. Very yeah. personal. The, to the him. flip side of that, though, is that that does show how much your friend is invested Absolutely. in his career. No, I, I, I felt the same way. You know, exactly to your point. Uh, he, he genuinely cared for and cares for his patients in a very uh, empathetic and genuine way, and so for that to be rebuffed or rejected or to feel that it's been rebuffed or rejected was hurtful. Uh, but like you say, uh, he could either harden his heart and not interact with people in that wonderful way. Uh, unfortunately, he chose to keep doing what he'd always done and keep doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, I know we, we're beginning to run out of time, but I, did wanna, I didn't want to leave without talking about prevention of malpractice claims because for folks in your shoes, obviously, you want to figure out how to deal with them, but I'm sure a component, too, is, is how to reduce them. It occurs to me the resilience you know, program and training is one way to do that, right? Given all the stresses and pressures on physicians, that is one thing that can you know, have them make mistakes if they're not understanding how to deal with that. But are there other just tips, I guess, that you might give to counterparts like you working for other you know, healthcare clients that, that you have found as effective ways to manage the risk at the outset? How do you prevent the claims, you know, either from occurring or maybe maybe part of it's that patient relationship we've talked about in this podcast about the apology or the trust that may result in a bad outcome, but not a not a malpractice claim. Yes. Uh, so most professional liability insurers that provide first dollar coverage for healthcare providers have a risk management program that they offer to their insureds at no additional cost and. I don't believe that most providers that are insured under those policies take advantage of those programs. Uh, so, you know, what I would, I would suggest to any uh, insured provider who's not part of a, a medical group or a system that has that coverage available to take advantage of it because um, those providers would learn from individuals who know risk management and claims management the best. Uh, for a health system, I can just speak from Wellstar's perspective. We have a really robust program called Safety First. So we have a whole team of employees that work at a system level, and all they do is try to reinforce and educate team members, clinical team members, nurses, uh, certified medical assistants, Mm -hmm. physicians on best practices in the healthcare industry for providing care for patients. And part of that, uh, part of their education is developed and informed by outcomes that were suboptimal in the past. So it's iterative and organic. And so we just have a really strong and robust program uh, around Safety First. I'll give you a statistic. Last year, we reduced the number of hospital-acquired infections, which is uh, Mm. the, obviously, as the name indicates, the number of uh, infections that are acquired in a hospital. Uh, At our hospital, is about 42% through our Safety First uh, initiative. No, that's a significant number. Yeah. That's great. No, that, that is, that's great. Do you know our other hospital systems engage in similar programs, or is Wellstar a little bit ahead or different in that regard? I think we're a little bit ahead um, in many dimensions, and that's one of the benefits of, you know, being a system our size. We're the largest in the state of Georgia, uh, so we have system resources that we can deploy across our footprint uh, when necessary. Great. Sounds good. Any, any closing remarks uh, from either of you, Kevin or Jason, before we wrap things up? No, I just want to say thank you to Jason. I think it's, uh, as a litigator across uh, 
a spectrum of industries and professions. It's interesting to me to see the similarities and differences. And I think one of the things in the healthcare realm, to me, that uh, is so important and, and candidly would be difficult for me, I think, is you're dealing with a human being in their, in their life um, in their relationships. And that is a far cry different than uh, when there's just money involved. I think it's, uh, it takes a, a special skill set to do that. So I applaud y'all's efforts and I'm glad y'all are finding success in, uh, in doing better by your patients and at the same time, you know, doing better for the bottom line and the doctors that work for you. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Jason. I'm, I'm thrilled you could join us. Um, if listeners, let's say at other organizations, want to learn more about Safety First or learn more about you, is there a website they should go to or go to your LinkedIn profile? What's, a, what's they, the best way to learn more? Sure. They can reach out to me at our LinkedIn profile or my email address is uh, jason.stevens, and Stevens is spelled with a V, uh, at wellstar.org. Great. Thank you very much. And, and Kevin, do you have a preferred way to be contacted? Yeah, it's great. Uh, at the uh, Womble Bond Dickinson website is probably the easiest way to, to get a link to my email address. And uh, if you Google me there, you, you'll hit me on our website and I can click a link directly to me. Great. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. I want to remind our listeners you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to the podcast at the WombleBondDickinson.com website or just go to iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast. We will be listed there. If you have questions or comments about this episode or want to suggest future topics, please contact me via LinkedIn, Twitter, or email. Thanks to everyone for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. I'll see you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womble Bond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.